This morning we find ourselves in John chapter 4. So if you haven't yet, grab your Bibles and turn there. We're going to start in verse 43 this morning. And it comes on the heels of Jesus' ministry in Samaria. And we know that that was a big cultural shock because the Samaritans were people that were uh, vilified and hated by the Jewish people. And what an amazing story we learn about a woman who is uh, in a very uh, shameful life, who has struggled with all manner of sin, meets Jesus, encounters Jesus, believes in Jesus, experiences new life in Jesus, experiences what it means to have the living water from a well that will never run dry. And then she goes and she tells her townsmen and women about what she's experienced, and many Samaritans come to believe in Jesus. And now what we have is this interlude that moves us in verses 43 through 45. It tells us that Jesus went from Samaria, and now he moves to Galilee, and there people welcome him. Now I want to stop there, and I want us to think about and explore for a moment what John is showing us. What John is wanting to show us, first of all, is that there is no distinction when it comes to being uh, welcomed to the life that Jesus offers. We have seen that Jesus is welcoming even Samaritans. They understand the gospel and they believe the gospel even though the Jews hated them. But now we get to Galilee and we see that Jesus is going to encounter many different people. In fact, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus is going to encounter lots of people from a lot of different places, different gender, uh, different places and positions in life. But there are, uh, there's a distinction that determines where you're at with Jesus. There's three of them, in fact, three groups of people that Jesus encounters. You might want to write this down. The first one is the enemies of Jesus. The enemies of Jesus. Now, we haven't seen that in the Gospel of John yet, but we will. As John continues to progress in the storyline, we are going to see the enemies begin to reveal themselves. Now, we know that the enemies are the religious establishment. They're the ones who have allowed the trust and faith, the religion of, of Judaism to be run amok. Jesus has encountered this already when he enters into the temple in Jerusalem and he begins to knock over tables because they had made a mockery and they had made a prophet which should have been the worship of God. The Pharisees are going to struggle with Jesus. They're going to debate with Jesus. They're going to do everything in their power to trip up Jesus. And they are even later on in the Gospel of John going to conspire to kill Jesus. Now I'm going to imagine that the vast number of you this morning are not in that category. Okay? That you've come here and you've done so and you're not antagonistic to the claims of Christ or, or the claims of Christianity. On the other side of the spectrum is another group of people. They are what I'd like to call the followers of Jesus Christ. In that group of people are the disciples. We learn that in this group of people also are the Samaritans who have believed and placed their ultimate faith, hope, and love on Jesus Christ, the Savior of their souls. These people have denied themselves. They're going to take up their cross. They're going to follow Jesus. They're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to learn from the disciples themselves that they're going to fail a lot. Even the great apostle Peter is going to deny Jesus. So it's not that followers of Jesus are perfect, uh, that they've got it all figured out. But what you're going to see with the followers of Jesus in the Gospel of John is that they are persistent. When they get knocked down by the grace and mercy and love of God, they get back up and they uh, commit to follow Jesus anew. 
the enemies of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, what we encounter in the beginning of our passage in verse 43 through 45 is a totally different group. They're what I want to call, and what John calls, as a matter of fact, the crowd. This crowd is going to be with Jesus to the very end. And what I mean by that is they're going to make their presence known. In fact, one of the places we'll see it later in the Gospel of John is in the triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus enters Jerusalem the week before uh, he is going to be put to death. And when he enters Jerusalem, a parade breaks out and they begin to announce the crowd does, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the problem is, is the crowd doesn't stop yelling. What they change is what they're yelling about. We're going to learn that that crowd is going to turn on Jesus very, very quickly. That crowd on Friday is going to announce, crucify him, crucify him, when they are asked what should be done with this Jesus who says he is God. You see, the problem with this third group is they are what I want to call fair weather fans, Fair weather fans, I, I was out in the parking lot and someone said, I'd never heard that term before. For sports fans, fair weather fans are a problem. For Cub fans especially, those who have agonized many, many years of losing seasons and that, you see a fair weather fan is different. A fair weather fan is one who shows up at the opportune time. Notice on the screen a definition of a fair-weather fan. It's a person who is supportive and enthusiastic about a sports team only when that team is performing well. Last night we learned that there are going to be two teams in the World Series, the Braves and uh, the, uh, Braves and the Houston Astros. I had to think about that. Houston Astros. We're going to have a whole bunch of new Houston Astro and Atlanta Braves fans because all these people are going to jump on what is called the proverbial bandwagon and start rooting for these teams for a short season. Now, some characteristics of these fans is they're known as fair weather or bandwagoners. They only support a currently successful team or organization. I love what this says. They're basically a stupid version of the passionate fan. All right? And if you're a real fan, you, it makes your blood, you almost, listen, you almost dislike bandwagon or fair weather fans more than you do the team you're opposing, right? At least they're passionate, at least they've been there, you know, real fans respect other real fans. But how do you know? Well, one of the best ways you know is if you ask, well, who do you like on the team? A fair weather fan, I don't know. Well, what do you think of the manager? I don't know. They know nothing about the team that they're rooting for because they showed up at the last hour when the team was doing well. It has been said two things that each of us can lose, 10 pounds and fair-weather fans or friends. But even worse than having a fair-weather fan as a sports team or a fair-weather friend who only likes you or is with you when things are good, the greater tragedy is that you would be a person who would be what you think is a follower of Jesus Christ. And it really, in reality, you're a fair-weather in your faith. That is, you're around Jesus when things are good. You're around Jesus, you like Jesus when Things are altogether positive and, and going well for you. Now here's where my burden is at. And it's been here and it's been brewing for some time. 
is that I think, and I'm saddened to say, that I think much of the evangelical world, and because we're in that stream, even some of us here at Village Bible Church, we're not really followers of Christ. Now, we would say we are. We would say that. And Fairweather fans, they say that. I'm a big fan, a big supporter. But let me ask you this morning a question. If you are, because the mouth of the book of James says, boast all manner of things, and we will boast that we love Jesus, that we'll die for Jesus, that all we want to do is live for Jesus. The mouth boasts those things. But let me ask you, in the last week, how much time did you dedicate to prayer? Outside of the times you were required to, because I told you to, or your small group told you to? When was the last time you were in the Word? Just you and God. When was the last time you served Him? Out of a joy, not out of a duty because someone told you to, but out of joy, I am here to serve others because I'm called to, to serve Jesus. When was the last time you gave? When was the last time you shared your faith just because you were so overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God that you just had to tell someone about it? You see, for many of us, we will say we are followers of Jesus Christ, but the evidence seems to go against us. And so we find ourselves around Jesus. We like being around Jesus but only if it works within our plan or situation, if it's advantageous to us. Now the Bible says, the Bible says that there will be many who will be in this category, and that's what scares me. There will be many because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, Did I not do this? Did I not do that? And they'll begin to set a litany of things that they were a part of and things that they saw and and maybe were present for. But Jesus will say, to listen, listen to me very, very carefully, Jesus will say to every fair weather fan of his, depart from me, I never knew you. So if you think this is nothing big and it's okay and we can be casual, I want you to know there is eternal implications to this. John calls this group the crowd. The crowd never truly believed. It never took its faith and and its seeing the signs and wonders and, and put it into action. And many, sadly, when they stood before the Lord, found out that being a fair weather fan of Jesus isn't good enough. And so this passage will show us the characteristics of a fair weather group of people. But I'm so thankful that John shows us an individual who moves, I think, from a fair weather position to being a fervent follower of Jesus. And it walks through how it goes about it. And the question I want you to ask this morning, I don't want to scare you in an unnecessary way. I don't want to take away true and real assurance of faith. But I want us to all ask the question, which one am I? 
And not to think, well, I hope my kid's listening or I hope the person down the aisle is listening. I want you to ask the question of yourself and of myself, which one am I based on the defining marks that are listed in this passage of Scripture? And so the scripture goes like this. It tells us that Jesus leaves Samaria where he has met bona fide followers of Jesus Christ. Not a single miracle has been done, just a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and people are saved, they're excited, and they're ready to walk in allegiance to Jesus Christ. It says then in the passage that Jesus enters into Galilee. These people should have gotten it. If anybody wasn't going to get it, it would have been the Samaritans. They get it. The Jews in Galilee should have gotten it. And what they're about is they are welcoming Jesus, which is great to see. But the reason why they're welcoming Jesus, the text tells us, is because they had seen all that Jesus had done during the Passover. Now, Jesus has already talked about these individuals in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. He says the following with regards to that. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Wait a minute, time out. Time out. When Jesus met believing Samaritans, he stayed for two days, no doubt to teach them and to develop them in the faith that they had. Why would it say that Jesus would not entrust himself? Why? Because he knew all people. And notice what it says at the end. For he himself knew what was in a man. He knows that their belief is no more than demonic belief because the demons believe, the book of James says, and they shudder at that thought, but they don't truly believe. And so these people aren't believing. They, they like Jesus. They want to be around Jesus, but they don't believe. And Jesus does not entrust himself to that. So they welcome him. And they welcome him because of all the signs and wonders. And then the text tells us there is a man, a certain man that comes. And we're told this man is an official. Other translations call him a nobleman. Literally in the text, he's a king's man. That is, he worked probably for Herod. It may have been he was a part of the security detail. It could have been that he was some provincial leader or governor. Whatever he was, he was a man of great affluence and authority. Now, this man comes, and he comes, and he's a part of the group that I want to call Fair Weather Fans. You can write that down in your outline, because we're going to learn a little bit about these Fair Weather Fans. And this guy comes, and the reason why he comes is he's got a problem. The text tells us, so you want to notice that in your Scriptures there, there's a problem. His son is sick. That, that, that phrase there, son, to help us describe it a little more, is it is a little boy. One British commentator that I read called him a wee little lad. That helps us to understand. Uh, one guy wrote down in his sermon, this is not a kid you tackle, it's a kid you hold. Okay, so we've got this little kid this toddler, this kid that you can hold in your hands. I've got three sons. I do not hold three sons in my hands. One of my sons yesterday tried to jump on me in a lazy boy. We broke the chair. Okay? You think you got problems in your house? 
Pray for Amanda, okay? This is not a big kid. This is a wee little boy. And the text tells us that this little boy, if something doesn't change, is going to die. Now, I want you to understand something. This is a big problem. We read right by that. We don't think about it. If you've been a parent and ever seen a sick child, especially a sick child who's only getting sicker and not getting any better, no matter what you do, you can recognize the helpless feeling you have as a parent, especially if you're at the hospital and they don't have any answers and the child isn't getting any better. And what we see is the first characteristic of a fair-weather fan, and that is they seek Jesus only in times of desperation. Now, wait a minute. You say, shouldn't we, in our times of desperation, seek Jesus? Yes. Here's the problem. For fair-weather fans, Jesus is the last resort, not the first option. And let me ask you this morning, in your times of crisis, is Jesus the first person you go to? Or after you have exhausted every other option, you've gone to your bank, you've gone to other people, you've tried through human wisdom to try to figure things out, and you've tried to unravel the, uh, the ball of string that's tangled up. You've tried to do it on your own, and then out of desperation you say, you know what, we've tried everything else, we might as well try Jesus. That's what fair weather people do in times of crisis. So this man comes, he's tried everything else, they've drawn everything they can, and he hears that this miracle worker, this magician, this guy, whatever he is, he's been able to do some things, and maybe, just maybe, if I can get his attention, if I can tell him my story, maybe he will come to Capernaum, and he'll lay hands on my son, And maybe that might fix it. So he makes the journey. It's a 16-mile journey. To help us put that in perspective, uh, we see on the map, Capernaum's on the north of the Sea of Galilee up, up here at the top of the screen. Cana is to the southwest, 16 miles. That's the distance between us and St. Charles. You no doubt have never walked that, nor have I, so how long would that take? Google Maps tells us that it would take eight hours and 31 minutes to walk from Cana to Capernaum. You say, well, why would it take so long to walk 16 miles? Probably the terrain. Now, this guy is a rich man. This guy is a man of means. So he's probably got a horse, a chariot, something that he could ride in. That would cut the uh, time down to about a third, about three hours, again, based on the terrain of the day. So this guy, he goes a long way, and he traverses great distance, and he does so so that he can meet up with Jesus, talk with Jesus, and explain the situation with Jesus. Now, what has brought, Jesus, what has brought this man to Jesus? Is it because he's a follower of Jesus? No. Is it because a friend said, let's go meet the Messiah? No. Is it because he read an Old Testament prophecy that pointed to Jesus being the one and only, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? The answer is no. The reason he is there is the same reason others are there, that they are seeking Jesus from a distance. Write that down. Notice 
The text tells us that the reason why the Galileans and all these people have come to see Jesus is they have heard or they have seen all the things that Jesus had done. They were spectators to the ministry of Jesus. Now that is in stark contrast to the Sumerians in verse 39 that says, and they believed the testimony of the woman and then they believed the testimony of Jesus without a single miracle being done. There's a contrast that John is wanting to show us. And the contrast is, is that to be a Fairweather fan means you merely need to be a spectator. This afternoon, if Pastor Tim gets done in a timely fashion, many of you will go home and over lunch you'll start watching football. It's a great thing to watch football. Can I get an amen? Man, it's a lot of fun. But let's be honest, when we watch football, we're not experiencing the fullness of it. On Monday morning, you will not be sitting in an ice bath because of you watching TV, right? So they've experienced the highs and lows. Those on the field who have experienced it firsthand, they've been there. It's a Within all of who they are, they experienced it. For us, we will have just turned off the TV and go on our merry way. That's the difference between being a spectator and being fully engaged. You see, these individuals liked watching Jesus. Listen to me. They liked watching Jesus. They had no intention of walking with Jesus. How many of our churches today are filled with spectators instead of people that have been saved by the grace of Almighty God? How many of us in our, in our lives are more busy watching Jesus do things in the lives of other people than actually walking with Jesus and experiencing him in the fullness of the Spirit? You see, this is why this is so important. This is why this is so serious is because it is so subtle. These people think, man, we're here. We're following where Jesus is going, but merely they're watching what Jesus does. And when the show finishes up, they leave. Now, Jesus is going to experience this in even a broader way at the end of John chapter 5 when Jesus turns loaves and fishes into a multitude of loaves and fishes to feed a group of 5,000 men and women and children, they'll come back the next day and they'll say, what are you going to do for us now? We're here. We're bored. We don't have TVs yet for another 2,000 years. We need something to be done. And Jesus says, you came to have your bellies filled, but let me tell you something. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, yeah, you know what? No, I don't want to walk with you, Jesus. And the text is going to tell us in John chapter 5 that all of them leave him. They all leave Because as Fairweather fans, if Jesus calls us to something more than just spectating, we want nothing to do with it, and we get up and we leave. You see, we can't walk with Jesus from a distance. Third characteristic that we see is we're distracted by things. Jesus rebukes the man He rebukes the people. In fact, it says Jesus rebuked him, that him there is in the plural, which means he rebuked them, but it was pointed towards him because at this point the man is in a fair weather place. He's come, he's heard about Jesus, he's experienced Jesus from a distance, 
And now he's demanding that Jesus come and and do some things. And Jesus rebukes and he says, listen, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, how awesome is that? Because don't we as Christians in the 21st century say, if only I'd walked with Jesus, if only I'd seen Jesus turn the water into wine, if only I'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, then I would really believe, right? How many of us have ever thought that or said that? If I had seen Jesus walk on water, my faith would be way more powerful and strong than it really is. Jesus says, listen, when you see those things not coupled with following Jesus, they're distractions, It's a magic show. It's like going to see Siegfried and Roy in the Las Vegas casinos. It's a show. And these people were so enamored by the show that they missed out on the Savior. And what we see is this man moves from being a fair-weather fan when he says, Jesus, listen, I, I got nothing else. And in my desperation, I need you to do something. And I want you to notice that what we see from that point on, Jesus leaves the Fairweather fans, the crowd. Jesus rebuked the crowd, and he moved on, and he focuses in on this guy. And he tells the guy, I want you to go. Your son's going to live. And what happens is, as we move from Fairweather fanship to this new category of fervent followers. And this fervent follower, we see some things. So we ask, okay, am I a Fairweather fan? Are those things true of you? Do you go to Jesus? Do you seek Jesus as a last resort in desperation? Do you follow Jesus from a distance as a mere spectator? And are you more distracted by the stuff around Jesus than really Jesus himself? And you've got some repenting to do. You've got some turning to do. And maybe you can deceive yourself. Maybe you can deceive others. But on the day of judgment, you will not deceive your Lord, the Lord and Savior of the world. And this guy, at such a place of despair begs Jesus to come and heal his son. He's got no other option. And in it we see what a true, fervent follower of Jesus looks like. Notice, first of all, being a follower of Jesus means turning to Jesus. This man goes to Jesus and he says, listen, I got nothing else. I got nothing else. Now, there's been some small steps of faith that we can't overlook, Before this man meets Jesus, the Holy Spirit is already working on this man because this man has done what every human being needs to do if they want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Capernaum. Let's focus in on the official's house. There's weeping and wailing. There's deep sorrow. The little boy is dying, probably with fever. Nothing is fixing it. The mom looks at the dad and says, you got to do something. Our boy is going to die. And the man gets up, probably from kneeling at his boy's bed, and he gets up and he says, the only person we have left that we can turn to is this Jesus. And he gets on his horse, and he makes a three-hour journey, leaving. Now, for a man, men, you know this, the last place you want to do is leave where the action is, because in ourselves, we think we can fix things. 
And there's nothing more despairing than knowing there's a trial going on in your family's life as a man or as a a member of a family and just to be separated by distance. I, I wouldn't have fully understood this had it not been for a couple months ago when my mom died. And many of you know my mom passed away suddenly. But many of you don't know that when I learned of it, I was nine hours away with my family on a trip. And I would learn in the car, trying to make my journey back, a nine-hour journey, that my mom would no longer be alive. And the angst of being far away from home, feeling totally out of control, helpless. This man gets up and he walks and starts making the journey to Jesus. Listen to me, friends. Believing means coming to the end of yourself and putting all of your eggs into the Jesus basket. I got nothing else. I am going to make a journey, and my journey is going to lead me to Jesus. I don't know what Jesus is going to do. I don't know what Jesus is going to say. I don't even know what Jesus looks like. But all I know is there's this Jesus, and he has been said to have powers and abilities to address my greatest need, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get as close to Jesus as soon as possible. And let me tell you something, if you have never done that, and I want you to hear it from this pulpit, you are not a saved follower of Jesus Christ. You might be a fan, you might like what Jesus is doing, but until you've come to the end of yourself and make the deliberate decision, I am getting close to Jesus no matter what, you're something else but saved. And so this man turns to Jesus He gets to Jesus, and he's persistent. Jesus, I am not going to stop until I get to you. I'm not going to stop until you hear from me. Jesus, I'm not going to stop until I get an answer from you. And he says to Jesus, come. And Jesus says, go. Wait a minute. I've just gotten here. All I've told you is my son is going to die. I haven't told you what he's going to die from. I didn't tell you where he lives. I haven't told you who I am. I haven't told you how long he's been sick. I haven't told you any of that. And what Jesus says is I want you to go. And then he finishes up by saying your son will live. And the man says, okay. you got to be kidding me. This man takes the testimony of Jesus. Now, remember, what does this man know as a spectator of Jesus? Well, we've got to imagine that uh, up to this point, all of Jesus' miracles were in person. That is, he would touch someone because that's what this man wants Jesus to do. You come, you touch my son, and you can heal him. Jesus says, listen, I don't even need to leave this place. I've got long-distance capability. I'm going to heal him from afar. I'm going to transcend time and space, and I'm going to heal. And the text says, notice in the text, it says that your son, your son is going to live. And notice what it says in verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Stop there. You and I can never be followers of Jesus Christ unless we believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
He believed. Well, how do we know he believed? And how do we know that he believed more than these individuals who saw? Notice what it says. This is so vitally important because you say, but I believe in Jesus. And I say the book of James says the demons believe and they shudder. So what do we got going on here? Belief is more than just a cognitive action of the mind. It's more than an emotional reaction of the heart. Notice what the text says. John shows us the man believed the word that spoke to him and went on his way. That faith went from his head to his feet and he said, all right, Jesus said it, that settles it, I'm going. I'm gonna get back on my horse I'm going to travel the three hours that we'll be back. In fact, we learn that the journey probably was longer because we learn that it's the next day that he runs into the person from his household, one of his servants, that gives him word. So he makes this journey, and he believes. You see, fans will boast that they believe. Followers of Jesus Christ will show it in action. That's why James said, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. He isn't saying that works save you. What he's saying is that a faith that that works is one that is active in obedience. So let me ask you this morning. You say, I'm not a fair-weather fan. How do you do at obeying the word of God? Jesus is speaking through his word. How do you do at following it? Now listen, I'm not perfect at it, nor am I thinking that any of you are perfect at it, but is it our great desire to wake up every morning and to follow the word of God? This is what this man does. And he goes on his way, and he makes the journey. But I want you to notice the white space between the black lettering there. There's something that isn't said. He goes on his way and involves an evening and involves time and space and nowhere in the text does it say at any point the man doubted. Nowhere in the text does it say the man fretted or was filled with anxiety. Nowhere does it say the man was given to depression. The man was on a journey The father didn't know if his son was alive or not. This man he's never met before says as soon as he tells them, hey, my son's going to die, you got to come. He says, I want you to go home. Your son will live based on the testimony of this man he's never seen before or heard before or talked to before. Based on it, from a distance away, the man gets on his horse, travels back home, and never does he doubt, never does he do anything. Why? Because this man was resting in Jesus. You say, Tim, how do you know or why are you so worried that there's so many Fairweather fans in the church? Because I see a whole lot of people who are way more unsettled than those who believe in the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I see a bunch of people who tell me that they're followers of Jesus Christ and they're being tossed to and fro become the circumstances of life. Woe is me, woe is us. I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm this, I'm that. Filled with all manner of worries and doubts. And I sit there and I say, do you not believe in the God who says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? Where's that faith? Where's that resolute sense? This man, his son is dying. He left the boy full of whatever was killing him. And with confidence, he heads back home. 
Because he believes in the faithfulness of the one who sent him. Are you someone, even in the most difficult of crises of life, are you able to believe the words of God? Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. That happens in John 14. I'm going to speculate here that I wonder if Jesus had in mind this nobleman. He believed. His heart was no longer troubled because he believed in God. And yet we have churches filled with people who confess that they are followers of Jesus Christ. Who are running scared because of the things of this world. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe in this Jesus who can heal, who can address your situation. Now, why do I think this miracle is for us? Because what Jesus does is he shows his power in an expanse of space and time. And that's the same way Jesus does things now. But Jesus, you're in heaven, that's okay. If Jesus can do work from Cana to Capernaum, he can do it from heaven to Hinckley, amen? This man turned to Jesus, he believed in Jesus, he rested in Jesus. And on his journey, he meets one of his servants. And notice he doesn't say, is my son okay? The only question he's had, when did it happen? When did it happen? And the guy says, in the seventh hour. And the, guy remember, and the nobleman remembers. That's exactly the moment that Jesus said it was going to happen. And he goes home, and he tells his family what he's experienced with Jesus. Because listen, he's experiencing something so awesome. He's encountered firsthand the power of God through the hands of Jesus that he explodes wanting to tell anybody. We explode when we see a good movie. We explode when we have food at a good restaurant. We explode about uh, the customer service we received or, or, or the new technology we have. This guy is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is so overwhelmed by what Christ has done in his life that he wants everyone and anyone to hear it. And it says his entire household believed. You want to know if you're really doing well as a follower of Jesus Christ? How excited. Let me, let me say it this way. How big of a compelling compulsion do you have that if you don't tell people about Jesus, you'll explode? This man gets home and he says, listen, I want you to know about this Jesus. And it says they believed. So let me ask you this morning, without you looking at anyone else, which one best describes you? Are you a fair-weather fan when it comes to Jesus? Or are you a fervent follower of his? Only you can answer that between you and the Lord. And I beg you that before you leave this place, that you will know it. Jesus would show us in his ministry that he lost any kind of interest in taking care of the crowd. 
And I will tell you, and I know it's the elders' desire, even as this church grows, it doesn't matter much to us if it's just a crowd. What we long for, what we are burdened for, is that this place will be filled with people who are all in when it comes to following Jesus Christ. And that's why we tell you the hard things. That's why we address these things as we do. And it may be a rebuke to you, and I hope that it is. Because I'd rather you hear a rebuke from a finite, flawed man than to hear it from the infinite God who has the power to send you to hell. Which one are you? If you can be humble enough to say, I was a Fairweather fan, you like this man on the road 